Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. I'm Shannon, and I am here today with your guide to the week's new releases. But before that, I have an interview with um, author Tracy Chevalier that Amber did last week. And this was a very, very cool interview. There were a couple of technical kind of glitches. There might be some audio interference that you hear during the interview. I apologize for that. I'm not sure... Um, the technology gremlins were in favor of our interview this week. Um, but hopefully you can bear with it and enjoy the interview because it was a lot of fun. So before we get into any of that, though, I have the usual housekeeping information for you. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Book Bistro Podcast. On Facebook, we also have a listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. So definitely check that out if you are interested. If you'd like to just send us an email, you can do that as well. And that address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for us on the web, you can find us at https colon slash slash anchor.fm slash book hyphen bistro. Okay, now on with Amber's interview with author Tracy Chevalier. Welcome to Book Bistro. My name is Amber, and today I have Tracy Chevalier here to talk about her new book, A Single Thread. And when Shannon asked if I uh, was willing to do the interview, I was super excited because you are one of my favorite authors, and I love historical fiction. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about A Single Thread and how you came up with the idea for it? Sure. Um I uh, have always wanted to write a cathedral novel uh, set in and around a cathedral because I've loved them since I was a teenager. And when I moved to Europe, I just started visiting cathedrals all the time. I love the atmosphere of them and the um, the sort of surprising communities that develop around them. So uh, I thought, OK, what cathedral should I choose of all the cathedrals in the world? And I decided on Winchester Cathedral because I went for a visit and I, I discovered these cushions and kneelers in the choir stalls that are brightly embroidered in yellow and blue and red and green and beautiful designs, very unusual, brighten up a dark part of the cathedral. And, and I found out there, and there are hundreds of them, and they've been made by a group of volunteer women in the early 1930s. And I thought, wow, that sounds kind of unusual, an unusual take on a cathedral. And it's it's also the only thing in the cathedral that we know is made by women. Everything else is made by men. And um, and I thought, I think I'm going to focus on this group and maybe do a gentle satire on the petty politics of volunteer groups. But in the end, it became something much more than that. It's really more than that, though, right? Because Violet as a character changes throughout the novel. And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the heroine's name is Violet Speedwell, and she's 38 years old. She's been living with her parents 
all this time and her father has died and she's with her rather insufferable mother. She is one of a group of women who are called the surplus women. Uh, there is a, a um, sur uh, there is two million more women than men in England after World War One, and the the newspapers dubbed them this this sort of pejorative label, uh, surplus women, because society at the time um, uh, assumed that every woman would marry, and um, if they didn't, then they were a burden to society. So she's a burden, and she's expected to live with her family, look after her mother, and her mother drives her so crazy that she decides at the ripe old age of 38 to break out and try to find an independent, create an independent life for herself. And that's what she does with the help of the cathedral and the embroidery group. And it seems like World War One is actually a character in itself in the novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it's interesting because it's the book starts 14 years after the war has ended, but its effect has still been devastating to the country with the loss of so many lives, every family is affected, has, you know, had someone they've lost or, or damaged by the war. And um, what's interesting in writing about the 1930s as between the two wars is that you and I, writer and reader, we know that um, another war is coming, but mm -hmm. our, the characters don't know it. So Violet has been through this terrible war and she, has no idea. She's lost her fiance. She's lost her older brother, um, and her mother has never really recovered from it, and is awful to her. And and she thinks that this is um, the worst that's going to happen. And yet we sort of know that she's going to have to go through something all over again. I mean, that doesn't happen in the book. It ends in 1934, but it was very sobering writing it, knowing um, what was what was coming for them all. Um, but it's an interesting time that's between the wars. Most novelists sort of choose one war or the other to write about. And I chose the bit in between. Yeah, it's it's almost like the Second World War was a character like every it was like you said, everyone knew it was coming except the characters. But it kind of shadows how you see what happens in the book. Yeah, and there are um, there are moments of it's it's not a political novel, but there are definitely moments when Hitler appears. Hitler becomes uh, chancellor of Germany, and there are things that happen that um, force Violet to consider the wider world a little bit more, and her response to the wider world, and her uh, how how does one rebel against? Uh, uh, against, you know, perceived fascism or uh, or other other elements, and it's um, it's it was I didn't want to write it as a, a a novel about that, but it's it certainly took on it had it took on a bit of that aspect as well. Can you talk a little bit about the characters of Gilda and Dorothy and and their, you know, it was it was kind of you know in the novel it was interesting that you put them in as characters. And can you talk a little bit about what they mean in the novel? I'm trying to think of a way of talking about them without right. spoiling well, I know, all, I know. Um, Maybe I shouldn't have asked that question, but it was such okay. an interesting, it was an interesting, you know, it was kind of, I don't know, it was unexpected, but in a good way, because I think it yeah. kind of highlights the way things are changing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, um, Gilda is the first real friend, um, Violet makes in Winchester and she 
turns out to to be more um, unusual than than uh, Violet ever realized. And she's uh, Violet hates it when everybody looks at her ring finger and sees that she's not got a wedding ring. Well, neither does Gilda. There's a reason for that, but um, uh, it it means that there are other um, there are other kinds of relationships that. Violet has to open her mind to and become maybe less judgmental. And as she's expecting people not to judge her, then she has to learn not to judge other people. And uh, I thought that that was really important to include um, because it, it seems, uh, you know, it, I, I didn't want it to be a completely conformist society because I think we have a tendency to view the past in a conformist way. Um, oh, they're all like this or they're all like that. And, Actually, they're not. An another example of that is that the people have asked me about is Violet and her sherry men. Yes, so she, yes. She has this, um, you know, everybody thinks, oh, an old maid, a spinster, she's not going to have a sex life at all. Well, that's not entirely true. So she meets um, every now and then she goes to a hotel and sits with a glass of sherry and looks around to see if she can meet somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, and this is uh, people have said to me, is does that really happen? And I said, come on. <laughs> <You know. laughs> of, course it of course it went on. And and actually, I um, I read a wonderful diary of um, it's called Diary of a Wartime Affair. And a uh, a few years ago, these two uh, a brother and sister who are in their 70s now, 70s or 80s, they. Um, they uh, discovered their after their mother's long after their mother's death. They discovered her diary from when she was in her 30s, and she um, it turned out that she had a long-standing affair with a married man, and she really, really wanted to have a baby. And he was a little bit reluctant about it, but they were you know they were seeing each other for a good eight years or so, and and it 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 tells all it describes all the you know her going out them going out for walks all night long and going into fields and things and lying down and and uh, and it was it was very reassuring to me that actually a single woman absolutely had her moments of passion and um and that we shouldn't just assume because they're not married the way everybody expects them to be that they're gonna not have a sex life so um i think we we have to open our minds as well a bit art art figures very prominently in a lot of your novels can you talk about the importance of art and how you use it uh in many of your novels I think it's it's quite instinctive. Um, there, well, there's two things. There's art, like looking at art and that that makes me feel things and think of things. And then there's also making art. So the the making of things is also really important. And I, I think um, in this book, they're making cushions and kneelers and in other books I've written. They're making tapestries mm -hmm. or quilts or, of course, a painting and um, I think, and then it, sprinkled throughout all the books are people making stuff for their daily lives. So they're quilts to sleep under or uh, make uh, grafting apple trees um, uh, or making buttons. And that sort of, um, I think it's important for us to remember that our ancestors made stuff and, and that that's a really important human aspect is and we're, which I think we're getting a little bit disconnected from because mm -hmm. everything's machine made now. Um, but but actually creating something 
um, that's useful and beautiful uh, is a is a really human activity, I think. And and that's what I um, I wanted to uh, to highlight here, um, particularly for the cushions and kneelers. They are really beautiful and they're also being used every day. And the women go and see them and they actually use their own. Sometimes they look for their own cushion or their own kneeler mm. and sit on it. And in fact, those cushions and kneelers are still in use today, 80 years later. So you can go to Winchester Cathedral and, and sit on them yourselves and, and have a good look at them and think about, turn them over and see the initials and the date. Um, so it, may, it reminds you that there's a real person out there who made them. Um, and and I, I just love that about it. It's very tactile and, and, uh, and visceral. You've written about a variety of different time periods. Um, is there a time period that's harder to write about than another one? And do you have a favorite time period that you've written about? Uh, there, there are different kinds of hard. Um, it, sometimes it's hard when the period is long ago. I think the, the, the earliest I wrote was 15th century France. Mm -hmm. um, so in medieval times, there just there wasn't much. There isn't much. Um, many resources from that period so it's it's a bit limited so you have to use what you can find um so it's it's hard in that way but um in in a funny sort of way the opposite is also hard um the 1930s tons has been written about it and um and it's you know people still alive who lived in that mm -hmm. period so i i interviewed a man who lives in winchester and is in his 90s and talked about being a young man in Winchester and told me all about the different bands he saw and the cafes he went into and the street life of Winchester. And, um, and that's really useful, but there's so much of it that you, um, it, it gets hard to wade through it all. Uh, another example is I'm, I'm my next book I'm writing about Venice set in Venice. It's about Ven Venetian glass. And, and that's wonderful. And Venice is still very much in some ways, very much as it was um, back in the 15th century, but it's also so much has been written about it that I just find myself having to wade through so many books. Whereas sometimes like medieval France or, or uh, tapestry weaving in medieval France, much hard, you know, there are a few sources. So you use those. Whereas mm -hmm. Venice, there are literally thousands of books and I, I have to be more careful, cho choose very carefully. And when you talk when you talk a lot about you know writing in the 1930s, I would think that you'd have to be like you said you'd have to be more careful because there are actually people who are around who remember what it's like. So if you get something wrong, you know yeah. they could just they could come back and be like, well, no, actually, you know, it was like this. And writing it as you know a time period, I can see how that would be more difficult in a way. Yeah, and, and um, I think that. The hard part about being a historical novelist is that I have to know the period, the stuff well enough that I can convince you, the reader, that I know what I'm talking about. So it's it's a confidence thing. Um, but if I the, the the hard part about a like say writing, for instance, a contemporary novel, which I've never done, is um, is that everybody we all are living in the contemporary mm -hmm. world and we all have our own takes on it. Whereas so so it's much harder to convince people that you have a genuine take on it, even though you do have a genuine take on it because you're living in it. Um, but for a reader, they'll sort of say, well, that's not how I feel about this. This is not, you know, I, I live in a different way. And uh, so it, it has its advantages and disadvantages writing history. 
And when you talk about doing research for your historical fiction, I know you said you do a lot of research and reading books, but you also travel to the different places. Like I was looking on your website and, you know, you're visiting Venice a lot now because you said you're writing about Venetian glass. Can you talk a little bit about how traveling to the actual place kind of affects, um, you know, the writing of the historical fiction novel? Um. It, usually the effect is a good one. Um, uh, Venice has its own <clears throat> set of special issues because it's such an unusual place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I said, everybody's written about it and you have to kind of find a way in that isn't quite, um, that isn't cliche. Um, and I, uh, I, I think I found it because the glass, the glass is not written about in the same way as everything else. But um, other times, other places. So, like, I've written a couple of novels set in Ohio in, ni- in the 19th century, and you would think that there's nothing particularly special about the places, but they are special. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the novels I wrote is called "At the Edge of the Orchard," and it's set in 19th century black swamp in Ohio, which is just an area just south of Toledo is the last area to be settled because it was literally a swamp and it was very hard living in there and i when i visited if you look at it all now it just looks like 21st century um ohio it is you know it's all settled it's there's no swamp there so you have to kind of squint and go to the nature reserves that are in the area where some of that swamp is still preserved and i'd look at it and see it see the swampiness, smell the swampiness, and I think, okay, now you have to translate that into everything you see around you. Mm -hmm. You have to pretend that it's covering all of this land rather than just this one little nature reserve. And so it just requires an effort of imagination of every day building up this world around me in my mind so that it feels real. I mean, that's what I do all day, really. Mm -hmm. I like on your website that you talk about what you're reading. Can you talk a little bit about what you're reading now and what have kind of been your favorite reads over the last month or two? Well, my favorite thing I've just read, I've, I've just been on a book tour of the States and I wanted a nice big fat read to get through all those plane rides. And um, I got sent a proof of the, of Philip Pullman's forthcoming um book called the secret commonwealth it's the second in this it's the second in a trilogy called the book of dust Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you've ever read his dark materials yes yes yeah so um which is a wonderful and i i love Mm -hmm. it and then the the second trilogy is about the the main character lyra in the first trilogy she's Mm -hmm. now an adult um in the second book of the second trilogy and she's 20 years old and it's kind of wonderful because the last time we saw her she was 12 right? sure so I really want to know what I wanted to know what happened and I was absolutely absorbed in it he's a wonderful writer very imaginative writes action really well it's very mm-hmm. action-packed and I was just completely absorbed all the way through and it was great because I was coming home and the flight home had a, quite a bit of turbulence and I really hate I'm one of those people <laughs> Who grabs at the person next to me? I, I do that. Perfect. Yes, <laughs> a it's complete stranger. It doesn't matter. And uh, this time, I was so absorbed in what was happening that it saw me through all the turbulence. So I was really grateful to Philip Pullman for that. And it's a wonderful read, and it's coming out in October. Um, and I also just read The Testaments by Margaret oh, Atwood. 
yes. which I thought was wonderful. Um, yeah. I was a little worried because it's a sequel and it's a sequel to a much loved book. And that could be a, a that's very, you know, what if it wasn't good? That would just be awful. Yeah. But it was um, I really loved it. Some parts I thought were stronger than others, but I was really absorbed all the way through. And I think it was a smart way of doing a sequel like The Handmaid's Tale is a very, um, very focused from a particular point of view of a handmaid. And this opens out the world of Gilead much more so that you get it from different perspectives. And I think that was a really smart thing to do. So we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, my last big question is, do you have a favorite book that you've written? <laughs> you know, the favorite book I've written is usually the book that I'm just <laughs> finished. Uh -huh. Only because it's like surrounding me, you know, it's like I'm so absorbed in it that it's very hard for me to think of it, uh, of anything else. Um, sure. But but once the dust settles, I think uh, the books that will probably remain are uh, our Girl with a Pearl Earring and mm -hmm. um, about the Vermeer painting and Remarkable Creatures, which is about a fossil hunter named Mary. I loved yeah, I loved that one. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and those two are the ones that all the readers talk to me about. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a funny feeling that a single thread might join it, just because people have had such a such a strong response to Violet Speedwell. And they talk about her like she existed. And I thought, ah, I think I've done my job if yes. that's what's happened. Violet may be one of my favorite characters of the year. Oh, great. And my last question is, is there a good way for listeners to contact you on social media? I know you're on Goodreads and Facebook and things like that. Is there a good way for them to let you know what they thought of the book? Yeah, they can. Um, lots of ways. I am on uh, Instagram. I'm on just just Google me and there, okay. or, you know, search on me and also Twitter. You can contact me that way. And also old fashioned website, tchevalier.com. And there's a contact page. So you can contact me that way. Great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, you were my first author interview. So thank you so much for being patient. And oh, no problem. good luck with the novel. Um, you know, I really enjoyed reading it. And like I said, it's going to it's going to probably be one of my favorite books of the year. So thank you so much. You're um, welcome. Best of luck writing about the Venetian glass. I can't wait. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Bye bye. Bye. OK, it is now time for the guide to this week's new releases. There are so many great books that come out in the fall. Of course, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know that there are a lot of great books that come out all the time. So the fall isn't really any different from any other, um, any other season, but the fall is my favorite. So I guess I think the books are better than as well. Um, the first few will be books that you've heard about before on our most anticipated books of October. So definitely refer back to that if you would like more information. Also, this list is not comprehensive. It would be impossible for me to talk about every book that came out in any week. Um, it's just not possible. So these are books that are of interest to me, to one or more of my co-hostesses, or just things that I think would generally appeal to the listenership of this podcast. If you are looking forward to something and I haven't mentioned it, please let me know. It helps me curate this, uh, these lists a little better. So first up is a book that I was really excited about when I read the synopsis. It's called The Good Luck Girls by Charlotte Nicole Davis. And it's kind of a dystopian, that like feminist dystopian type of book that's really big these days. 
Next, we have a book that Amber talked about um, on our most anticipated books of October episode, and this is The Fountains of Silence by Ruda Sapatis. And we have two that Brooke is super excited about. First up is The Lying Room by Nikki French, and then next is The Shape of Night, which is the latest novel from Tess Gerritsen. This is a standalone kind of a break from her very, very popular Rizalian Isles series. Um, it looks, it's talked about as romantic suspense, but it looks like it might be a bit ghosty too, so if you're into those kind of creepy, like supernatural books, you might want to check this one out. And then that brings us to the end of the stuff that we've talked about before. All of these books coming up now are books that we haven't mentioned. First up is Royal Holiday, and this is the fourth book in the Wedding Date series by Jasmine Guillory. And this is an author that I keep meaning to check out. Apparently she does a lot of really great contemporary romances um, with ethnically diverse characters, so I'm pretty excited about this. Again, it's Royal Holiday, the wedding date number four, and it is by Jasmine Guillory. If you enjoy sci-fi romances, you might want to check this next book out. This is Aurora Blazing, and it is the second book in the Consortium Rebellion series by Jesse Mihalik. I read the first one when it came out earlier this year, and it was okay. Um, I didn't love it. It's called Polaris Rising. Um, it the heroine of the first book didn't thrill me, but I thought there were some really cool plot elements. So if you like sci-fi, you might want to check it out. Once again, it is Aurora Blazing, and it is book two in the Consortium Rebellion series by Jesse Mihalik. Next up is Whispers of Shadow and Flame, and this is by L. Penelope. It's the second book in her Earthsinger Chronicles. And this is, um, so the sequel to Song of Blood and Stone, which originally came out a few years ago and was republished, I believe, last year. So this is the follow-up to that. Um, it's a very, very cool fantasy romance. If you haven't read the first one, definitely pick it up and then move on to this one. So this is Whisper of Shadow and Flame, and it's Earthsinger Chronicles, book two, by L. Penelope. And how about some women's fiction? This is The Dressmaker's Gift by Fiona Valby. And it's basically the story of three women who are dressmakers. And some very bad things happen to them, apparently. And they're forced to make some difficult decisions that they kind of wonder, like, what will history think of them, you know, in, in years, like, down the road. So this, again, is The Dressmaker's Gift. And the author is Fiona Valby. So, Patricia Cornwell is starting a new series. The book is called Quantum, and the series is the Captain Chase series. I really enjoyed Cornwell's early Case Carpetta books, but then I kind of lost interest in the series. So, I don't know if I will check out Quantum, but it apparently is um, a series about a detective who is somehow involved with NASA, but also does some cybercrime investigations. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but if you've enjoyed Cornwell's other work or you just are interested in learning about some cybercrime uh, cyber investigations, you might want to check out Quantum and it's Captain Chase Book One by Patricia Cornwell. This is 
a book I'm super, super excited about. This is The Last True Poets of the Sea, and it is by Julia Drake. It's coming out this week from Disney Hyperion Press, and it's a queer young adult romance. I love so much that Disney is supporting like queer YA literature. That just makes me so happy. Um, this is a super sweet lesbian romance about two teenage girls. Definitely check it out if these are your thing. It is The Last True Poets of the Sea by Julia Drake. Lauren Smith is releasing the 11th book in her League of Rogues series, and this is The Earl of Kent. I am very, very behind in this series. I think I've only read the first three, possibly four. So I need to do some catching up, but I really enjoyed um, the, the wit and banter that Smith puts into these books. So I definitely will catch up at some point. So this is The Earl of Kent, and it's League of Rogues, book 11 by Lauren Smith. Next up is a thriller that I had a chance to read an early copy of. This is Where She Went by Kelly Simmons, and I read a lot of thrillers. This one was not one of my favorites, but I thought that there were some plot elements that made it pretty compelling, and so I'm mentioning it here. It's about a teenage girl who gets herself into a bit of trouble. Her mom is a 911 dispatcher and she answers the phone at work and her daughter's on the other end of the line and something really terrible has happened. Um, and now the mother is trying to figure out what happened to her daughter before something even more terrible occurs. So this is where she went and it is by Kelly Simmons. If you love John Sanford's books, you will be happy to know that Bloody Genius, which is the 12th book in his Virgil Flowers series, is out this week. I really enjoyed some of his early Prey books um, featuring Detective Lucas Davenport, but I have not gotten too much into this Virgil Flowers kind of spin-off series. I know a lot of people love it, though, so I do want to mention it. It is Bloody Genius, and it's Virgil Flowers, book 12, by John Sanford. Next up is The Butterfly Museum by Renee Denfeld. This is the sequel to last year's The Child Finder, and it's about a, a woman who's searching for her missing sister in a city where a lot of homeless girls, young homeless girls, have disappeared. So once again, it is The Butterfly Museum and it is by Renee Denfeld. This next book is Everything You Are, and it's by Carrie Ann King. It looks super intense, very sad. It's about a man who returns home after a tragic accident that took the lives of his wife and young son, and he wants to kind of repair his relationship with his teenage daughter. Apparently, this is not as easy as he hopes it will be, um, and it just looks really, really fantastic. So it's Everything You Are, and the author is Carrie Ann King. And I have to, of course, talk about another mystery, because I love these a lot. This is One Night Gone, and the author is Tara Laskowski. And a woman goes missing, and the consequences of that kind of reverberate down through generations. Um, I don't know much more than that, but I'm really eager to find out. So it's One Night Gone, and the author is Tara Leskowski. We next have Little Voices, and this is by Vanessa Lilly. And basically, it's about a woman 
who is trying to figure out who murdered a good friend of hers. Unfortunately, another one of their like friends is the chief suspect. And so she's trying to figure out whether this person really is like the innocent person she has always believed them to be or whether they are a murderer. So that's Little Voices and it is by Vanessa Lilly. Next up is a really unique fantasy novel. This is The Library of the Unwritten and it's Hell's Library number one by A.J. Hackwith. And the plot is basically that the characters created and put into unfinished manuscripts live in this library, which is the library of the unwritten. Now, what happens when some of those characters begin to disappear from their manuscripts? I really want to check this out. So it's the library of the unwritten Hell's Library, book one by A.J. Hackwith. Next up is Scars Like Wings by Erin Stewart. This is a young adult novel about a teenage girl who is trying to put her life back together after a fire that facially disfigures her and also kills her parents and her best friend. Um, again, it looks like a pretty intense read and it's Scars Like Wings by Erin Stewart. If you are a fan of young adult dystopia, you'll be pleased to know that Legend, um, the series that Marie Lou started many, many years ago, I think back in like 2012, um, she's written a fourth book and this is called Rebel. So it's Legend book four by Marie Lou. And I've read some other things that Lou has done. I've not read the Legend books, but I really, really want to. So this is Rebel Legend book four by Marie Lou. Next up is Resurrection Girls by Ava Morgan. And it's about a family of women who move in next door to a young girl named Olivia. And Olivia is really drawn to this family, but there's obviously something more to them than she initially thinks. And there's some magic and some chaos. Um, it looks like kind of a spooky Halloween read. So it's The Resurrection Girls by Ava Morgan. And last but not least is The Memory Thief by Lauren Manzi. And this is a young adult novel in which memory is used as a form of currency. And this really, really intrigues me. So I'm eager to check this out. Once again, it is The Memory Thief and it's by Lauren Manzi. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have found at least a couple of things to add to your TBR piles. Definitely let me know what you have been reading and loving or what you're looking forward to reading. I'm always happy to hear. If you would like to let us know your thoughts, you can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform you use to access the show. And not only does it allow us to see your feedback, but it also helps other book lovers to find us, which is a great thing. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with more bookish fabulousness. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more discussion of great books. Take care, everybody.